Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 186, A Different Way of Approaching Meditation. We're joined again by meditation teacher Jason Siff to explore the fundamental ideas behind his unique approach of unlearning meditation. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. There's another tool that you draw on in your own teaching that I found really interesting and it's meditative journaling of some sort. And I've had experience uh, writing down experiences after meditation and the way I was doing it, I was telling you before the interview was the Mahasi journaling where it's, I write down to the best of my ability, what I remembered and very specific descriptive experiences of the phenomena and the notes that I used to note them. And, and then the teacher would sort of use that as a way to kind of diagnose where I was at in my practice and to mm-hmm. fine tune the actual instructions of the practice. And then I had a class actually when I was at Naropa University where we did this journaling about our experience and it was much more open. It was use whatever words that you want to use, describe things in detail or use poetic language. And that was something more akin to what you teach people. And I was wondering if you could say something about the meditative journaling, why you suggest it, and then also what are the mechanics around it? How is it done? Well, one of the main reasons why it's done in this kind of approach is that because people aren't being given real instructions of what to do in the sitting, they're more or less um, learning from their experience that in order to do that, you need to have some way of journaling or recalling what goes on and picking up a bit more of what I say of how you are with certain things that are happening and getting much better descriptions, you know, honest descriptions, not necessarily fully accurate, but ones that are strike you as truer to or closer to what you're experiencing. Through some of these new descriptions, you may find that it's helping you when you sit again to be a bit more conscious of what's going on. So this is a process of through memory and calling back to mind what goes on in your experience. When you sit again and you have similar experiences, you'll find a greater familiarity. Now, one thing about the journaling is to really try to use more descriptive language and to just journal a a descriptive uh, narrative or list of descriptions of experiences and not to use technical language or single words that generalize and try to capture a whole range of things. Instead, you know, write in a bit more detail and use metaphors and similes that come to mind. And you'll find that it may bring you just a little bit closer to what was going on. In doing this kind of description, you may start to see that there's many more aspects to your experience or different factors that are present than you realized. So if someone is doing a a noting practice and they're just writing down, you know, that they had a period of anger or they had aversion to something or felt some desire, that says something, but it really doesn't say much about what was going on. In fact, it's a summary of an experience rather than a description of it. 
if you could go back into those kinds of experiences that maybe you thought were planning or or anger and a fuller description like for instance planning you might find well it's different at different times sometimes you're thinking about a work project and what you're going to do later and you're actually figuring something out sometimes you're picturing a meeting somebody and maybe having some apprehension about that and considering what you're going to say to write down those fuller descriptions is much more helpful than to say that all of these things are planning interesting and it's striking me too that you're mentioning the word recollection a lot, and I understand that the term mindfulness, sati, is related to recollection. Yes. That's a little different. I, and I saw an article by B. Allen Wallace, and he was talking about how mindfulness often gets sort of misunderstood as being sort of bare attention to what's happening in the moment versus this sort of ability of the mind to recollect both in terms of the past and in terms of recollecting in the future, which is intention, to recollect something, mm-hmm. like when I have the intention to sit down, if I'm doing your journaling practice, for instance, I, I may have the intention, okay, at the end of this, I want to sort of remember some of these things that happened. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent, but it's striking me that the way you well, use the term one, recollection, you know, yeah. I mean, really, it's an important distinction. And historically, I mean, in the language, you know, sati and Sanskrit smriti, it's referred to recollection. And I really do believe that what the Buddha was teaching in many respects was how to notice your experience, how to become aware. And if you can't be aware of something in the moment, um, and certain things like you know, thoughts, for example, if you try to be aware of them in the moment, you're stopping them, or you're trying to create distance or something. Um, you're not really seeing where they go, what's holding them together. So, the only way I could see to develop awareness of thinking would be recollection. And then it started to seem to me the only way I could really develop awareness of of how things developed, in a sense, where things would lead would be by letting them go on and then recollecting afterwards. So, recollection enables us to get a, a much broader picture of what's happening. And I think one of the criticisms that people may have about it is that, well, you're talking about something that's already happened. You know, it's in the past. You're not really with it right now. So, how do you know it? Well, when you're with something in the present, even though you're with it, you know, you're still representing it to your mind. You're still telling yourself something about it, just as you are when you are recollecting something. And you may be telling yourself something about the experience, which it may just be a bias or, you know, a conclusion. Whereas in recollection, you might notice you're not always in the same reacting or thinking or intending the same way around certain experiences. You may find that there's more going on. So that's part of that whole direction. Interesting. And as you're talking about this, it really strikes me that there's not, in the way you're talking about things, such a big distinction between the mind and views and then our quote-unquote direct experience on the other hand, that these things really are incredibly interconnected and intertwined. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that something that you've come to in your own process? Well, well, I see that... A prescriptive meditation technique such as the Mahasi method or, you know, many of the approaches where you're supposed to do something all the time, you know, has a concept about how things are, about the nature of reality or truth or mind. And so the instructions are there to help prove that concept. And I think many people don't realize that the concept within the instructions is still just another idea about experience. It's still another view that you're trying to have. Is it something that you've come to? 
you know, that's one of the questions is how you've actually understood things to happen. And so the way to question some of the views is by looking at the views we hold. And so when I teach meditation, instead of trying to just give a, a view of how to see things, often what I really try to do is hear the student's views. The student mm. has a view of God or materialistic view of the world or uh, any type of religious spiritual view. Then I try to understand how that view is working within that person's practice and we're able to talk about it. And then it can be kind of contrasted with some of their descriptions and that they can start to learn to see things differently, not because I'm telling them how to see things necessarily, but because they're starting to pick up that their experiences may actually contradict some of their views or not actually fit into some of the views. Or some of the views are really speculative. They have to do with something other than the nature of their experience. They're speculating about something transcendent. But along those lines, when I do a retreat, I will talk a bit quite a bit actually at times, around conditionality and the teaching of dependent arising. Mm -hmm. And I don't quite see that as a view, as a type of prescribed concept for people. I actually see it more as something that emerges from how you're aware of your experiences and how they're put together. It's not necessarily something where everyone comes up with the same experience and the same notion that this is it. They come up with, you know, I'm kind of grappling with how certain things keep going in my practice. Why are certain thoughts or feelings repeating themselves? Why do I keep making these same choices? How do things hold together like a certain feeling? What, what keeps this state alive for so long? And so there are a variety of things that people start to look at, which I would say have to do with conditionality. So part of what I'm hearing you describe is something around this process of meditation. That, that it's more of a process, and it's not clear that there's a specific endpoint. I mean, I know you're talking about conditionality and an awareness of how things arise and how things are related, but it sounds like there's a lot of also mystery in what you're talking about, that there's an open-ended quality to it. Mm-hmm. Many uh, meditation practices are actually given with a particular goal in mind. And when you have a goal in mind, you really have a concept and a view and, a, and you imagine what that goal would be. So you're also hearing descriptions from teachers or reading descriptions from books about that goal, which may also feed that imagination a bit. And then you are trying to actually have an experience that you haven't had and you believe somebody else has had and that you're going to have a very similar experience to that other person and it's going to totally change you in some way or at least have some great beneficial effect. When meditation is presented from that kind of standpoint, I see that there really isn't that much mystery in it. You basically have an idea of what's going to happen if you keep doing it. Whereas when you meditate with just staying with your experience and seeing where the process goes, you start to find that there isn't really a formed concept of where it ends. You might have some glimpses into some more optimal states or different ways of looking at things, but you tend to come back into more or less how you are, at least after some time. So there's a way in which a 
process where you're just kind of noticing your experience over time will start to give you something a bit more realistic around how your mind develops or how changes occur and what things seem to stick and what some of the new perspectives are that are useful instead of trying to get to some particular attainment or realization. And part of this I think in practical terms is that when we look at our experience of meditating, it's not necessarily on a single track. We're going into a variety of different states. We're not always getting into the same kinds of tranquil states when we meditate or having the same relationship to certain experiences. You might have a sitting where it's very easy to be with some anger or, or sadness and the next one you're, you're really upset or you're crying. And that's part of what meditating is. It's not something which is going to be trying to produce a static type of experience that you have all the time. The way of looking at your development in meditation, and it's not so easy. Earlier, I was talking about, you know, not necessarily trusting our minds in this process. We might also not be able to trust our own assessment of it, our own way of looking into our experiences and seeing what we found was beneficial or the perspectives that seemed to be useful or the, the orientation around practice, intentions around practice that we really want to cultivate. This kind of approach to meditation really does require quite a bit of self-honesty that you're not trying to tell yourself another story about your meditation practice or have somebody else's meditation experiences or something like that, but see where your practice goes. So I often suggest that people do a, a review of their sittings. And if you have journal notes, it really helps to be able to do that and to maybe look at it every six months or, or a year or so or to spend some time kind of looking at some of the changes within your meditation practice and how you've changed as a person from the way you're meditating. I think we all kind of intuitively know that, that anyone who's meditated for a long time can see that there are certain things that they just won't do anymore or certain thoughts that seem to be not coming in as much. And that's you know, a part of what happens when we practice. And that's truth, you know, so it's true feedback around what your meditation practice is doing rather than something that is more of imagination, saying that because you've had a certain realization or experience that you're now a particular way, even though sometimes you lapse from it. My suggestion, I go into this in the book, it's in the last part of the book, is to really try to look at whatever you've stated as a particular accomplishment or attainment in meditation and live with it and see is it actually serving you or would it just be better to just put it aside and just go back into being with your experience as it is and just being honest with yourself and um, I figured to wrap things up it'd be nice to get into some of the the more practical suggestions in here that are not that common one of them is how to work with calm states. And you present one way of getting into what you call samadhi that's completely different than anything that I've heard before, which has more to do with drifting off and then allowing the mind to come back. And as a result, somehow there's a, a deepening sense of calm that happens. Could you maybe lay a little bit of that out in terms of how people could do that? And, and Well, so I think the, the first thing is if you've been meditating and you haven't allowed yourself to go towards sleep in meditation, that you've continued to try to wake yourself up, 
to stop doing that in a way, to really let yourself drift. And that it's okay. And it's okay to slump while you're sitting. It's okay to be drowsy. And not necessarily, it's not a, a problem. In fact, what will happen is that you may find that as you go towards sleep, you're not actually falling asleep many times. You're getting close to sleep and there can be fragmented sentences or sentences or words that don't quite make sense, light or colors or strange movie-like scenes. And these kinds of uh, mental phenomena coming in at that time may help you just kind of wake up a little. So let your attention go to those things. And you may find that you kind of pass through it and you get into a more of a, a tranquil state that your mind can start to focus more and think a bit more clearly. This is in contrast to our normal notion of developing tranquility. We often think that to go into a tranquil state, we need to stay focused on a visual image or a mantra or the breath. And we follow that and we keep following that. And then we're going to be really tranquil and focused and we're going to get into a particular state around that. And that does happen to people. But this approach that I'm talking about of allowing yourself to drift is one that you don't have effort in it. You don't have a sense of any kind of tension or trying to get somewhere. It's naturally occurring and that when we do get relaxed in meditation, even by following the breath, we may actually start to get sleepy. That That's part of a relaxation response for many people. And to allow that kind of sleepiness in and then to see what starts to emerge from that kind of hypnagogic state. So this way of developing samadhi, we'll say, starts to, in a sense, one would start to wake up a bit more and find that these kind of twilight or hypnagogic states are going to continue longer. They're going to have a, a slightly different quality over time. And they won't be much of a hindrance. You know, you won't see them as something to get rid of. You might see them as something that actually uh, is a bit pleasant and welcomed. And many people have reported to me when they've allowed these experiences in that they're meditation has had a bit more pleasure and it's an internal pleasure it's not a gross sense pleasure and these kinds of calm states are very good periods of relief because what will often happen is you'll go from a calm state back into something maybe more agitated or filled with thoughts or things and that cycle is quite natural um, that calm states aren't necessarily going to always lead to more calmness. It might actually lead to bringing up other things. Why is that cycle so common? I know that you've uh, talked a little bit about this in your book as the, the meditative process. Mm -hmm. What's up with that? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I would say that the calm states, and this is found in Buddhist suttas, they suppress certain emotions or corruptions or defilements. They don't get rid of them necessarily. You know, they may help us look more deeply into them at times, but there's no sense in Buddhism of a calm state being transcendent and eliminating something that elimination or abandonment would come about through wisdom. So these calm states, they're periodically suppressing our agitation, our worries, our cares, but they'll come back again. And my sense of it is that 
if you do a practice of getting calm by just watching your breath or focusing on a particular object, that you don't get to look at some of these states going into the calmness. You don't get to look at your agitation or worry so much. You kind of are taking a shortcut and bypassing them. Whereas in a more open meditation practice like I'm proposing, you're actually able to look at your cares and worries or fears or sadness or grudges, whatever is kind of alive in your mind. And you may find that while you're looking at them, your mind does settle down, they become less of a, a hindrance, and you find yourself getting calm. And then you might find when you come out, you don't necessarily go right back into them. You may, but when you do go back into them, you have a slightly different perspective on them because you've stayed with them. You're not trying to avoid it. And that will have effect on this kind of cycling. It won't stop it, but it may make it so that you're actually more patient and tolerant of those times when you come out of a calm state and suddenly you're, you're agitated and restless. That instead of trying to get calm again, you might utilize that calmness to be with that new experience. Hmm. Sounds like some development of, of equanimity, but in a big sense, not in trying to develop it right there in the sit, but something that develops just as Develops a, over time, over right. Time. And not equanimity as a kind of being detached from experience. Right. Of separating, but how you are with it. Nice. And I'm wondering, just to wrap up, if you had anything that you felt like you didn't get a chance to touch on or any sort of concluding thoughts? I think the thing I really haven't touched on is um, found in the third part of the book on um, the meditative process. And it just may help in kind of looking at what I'm saying is that I do see a place for more traditional practices. But rather than having students start with a traditional practice, say, of being where the breath or noting or practicing metta, to allow those experiences to come up more naturally in the sitting. You know, for metta, for example, you may notice at some point in your meditation sitting that you do have some thoughts of gratitude or kindness or friendliness towards some other people. And you might find that at that moment, you really feel it and you could stay with it. So, it's just practicing metta when it is effortless, when it just kind of comes to you. The same thing with awareness of the breath, when you just find yourself noticing the breath in the meditation and there isn't really much effort in it, you can then hold your attention there without thoughts and other things pulling your attention away so much and really get a lot of benefit from that practice. So, instead of doing these kinds of techniques as something to start the meditation practice with or something you do all the time, to see them as things that you may bring your attention to at different points within your sitting and then do them as you, you would. You may find that you're doing them then without particular kind of force or pressure and they're actually starting to have that kind of, or they're going in the direction which you've probably read about and heard about. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. 
This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.